This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the New Books Network in East Asian Studies channel. And today we are here, uh, we are here with Dr. Hentai Yap, Associate Professor of Performance Studies at the University of California, San Diego, and co-editor of Saturation, Race, Art, and the Circulation of Value. Hello, Dr. Yap, and welcome to our channel. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. And thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Minor China, Method, Materialism and the Aesthetic, published by Duke University Press in 2021. Um, You know, as usual, I'm going to start by asking uh, you some, you know, preliminary questions uh, with the scope of of getting to know you and your work better. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more about how you came to this project, what sparked your interest in the minor as a method and the way of seeing art and politics through this this lens. Sure. Um, Well, first and foremost, thanks so much for having me. This is a real honor and this is kind of exciting to talk through the work with you. Um, So this is this book, Minor China, um, I think... I think the kind of easiest way to approach it is through a slightly biographical way of thinking through this. Um, so rather than kind of the academic kind of approach. Uh, so for me, the book kind of stems from kind of a longstanding um, preoccupation with what it means to think about aesthetics and politics, art and politics. Um, so I used to dance professionally um, after college. And um, this was during the time around um, September 11th, 2001. And so there's a kind of existential crisis of, you know, why bother doing the arts when the world is falling apart? And so for me, um, it was at that moment, it was a lot about questioning the limits of what the aesthetic can do and almost kind of veering towards thinking about the, the quote unquote, the law and the, the explicit ideas of the political um, uh, that would kind of answer some of my lingering questions. And so I ended up going to law school and during that time, I also then realized um, how limited the law is in and of itself as well, meaning their definition of rights, their definitions of recognition, their definition of justice are often predefined by liberal ideals. And much of this is never interrogated. If anything, it's sort of presumed that, that, that we just presume what the subject is, what the law is, and what rights are. So it wasn't until I kind of did graduate school where I finally kind of found the space to think theoretically to place pressure on both the aesthetic and also um, the political. And so this the book minor the the book minor China, but really the method that I'm producing in the book, the minor is a method, is a way of kind of grappling with these two longstanding veins in my own life, um, which is really fundamentally about how we can. Um, 
how we can think about the aesthetic where it's not just simply a resistance, a form of, you know, making it equivalent to the political. And at the same time, how can the political not just simply over-determine how we even understand art and culture? Um, so the minorism method is fundamentally a way of using the aesthetic as a way to kind of render supple um, what we even think the political to be. Um, and so for me, China often predefines um, what the political is, especially in its sort of liberal definition. Um, so this, for me, I was sort of using China as a way to really think through these fundamental questions of how we even define the aesthetic and the political. That's fascinating. And I'm very happy to 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 hear this, you know, um, story that kind that brought you to this project because you know I'm trying to think through the medical aspect of things as well and you know um, like well of course not with the pandemic but uh, in general you know how can aesthetics and you know the medical thinking in a way could uh, you know interrogate one one another and produce interesting things after that so yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think a huge part of it is about, you know, understanding the punchlines that we often automatically go to for, let's say, in defining what we think science and medicine are in addition to the aesthetic. And I think doing interdisciplinary work allows us to really not just repeat what we understand, but rather interrogate and place pressure around the assumptions around many of the key terms that we use in our scholarship. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, that that comes um, out of conversations as well. And I think it's it's good to have a community that is interested in, in doing this um, uh, together. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, speaking of putting putting pressure on concepts and on the, the, the punchlines that we we go to, um, you know, I'm just going to say that we're going to start with the book and then that uh, the book here is divided into five chapters in addition to the introduction and the afterward. And the introduction draws the roadmap, I would say, and unpacks the key concepts in the book. Um, and um, I thought that they are history, the state, subject, agency, and the aesthetics, um, as well as the manner in which they interconnect in the book. And then on page seven, we read that, quote, Minor China as method refuses to replicate the major assumptions behind the key terms that situate the non-West, produce better readings of art for China, or privilege new terms over established ones, end of quote. And with this in mind, I want to invite you to unpack this quote and tell us more about the thinking and the epistemological intention behind the quote, but also behind the work in the introduction. Sure. Um, so that quote that you read, um, I think, was really listing out um, the things that I was trying to have the book not do, right? So the method is trying to, you know, it's really refusing to replicate the major assumptions behind the key terms that situate the non-West. So what I didn't want to do um, was um, kind of simply write, you know, here's China and here's China's contemporary art. And let me just sort of rehash how the subject produces agency or resistance against the state. And rather than doing that, the book is trying to produce a mes- method to what I call kind of hesitate from rushing into the, the knowability of these terms and really trying to use the miners method to even unpack what we, what we assume to be the state, history, subject and agency and the aesthetic. Um, so rather than replicating these sort of major terms that in frame and how we talk about China and, and minoritarian and non-Western art, 
um, the book is really about um, uh, sort of pausing from replicating these assumptions around some of these key terms. Um, then the kind of second part of it is I'm kind of just sort of abstaining from producing better readings of art for China. So I wanted to not necessarily make this a method that is showing the right way to do it, but the method that I'm fundamentally trying to put forward is through a kind of pause or hesitation from reproducing some of these key terms. So it's not that it produces a better reading that's more minor, but rather a way to really unpack these terms that allow us to understand their Eurocentrism, their limits and their assumptions, um, and their ontological conditions that really undergird how we understand the world and the terms that we use. And so rather than privileging new terms over established ones, um, and sort of like replacing history with something else, I really want to pause and sort of help use a method to allow us and the aesthetic as a kind of method to allow us to um, really engage and unpack um, so many of the words and terms that we use um, to discuss art, China, politics, the state and agency. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought in the in the quote, I, I... I think maybe I didn't um, emphasize it, um, but, you know, I thought that the refusal and the hesitation were very, very important. And, um, you know, throughout the chapters, we we definitely see uh, this emphasis on the hesitation. But maybe you could say one or two more words about, um, you know, the the practice of, of, you know, refusal to produce these um, as you say, better readings of art for China or just hesitating and staying with a term in order to, to see its ramification and unpack it? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think hesitation was a term that I was drawing from um, the scholar Lisa Lowe. And a lot of what I was sort of building on the hesitation from her work and from a few others is that it, rather than rushing into reproducing the very terms in which we often talk about the world, we might instead hesitate and pause to rethink their bases and their understandings. Um, so rather than saying we sort of saying China, we understand what it means and we talk about its relevance today, um, we sort of take a step back and under, and think about how we're thinking about the nation state and how we're thinking, what are the assumptions around um, China's place in the world that we're often sort of reproducing. So um, hesitation really is fundamentally about that kind of, um, that kind of work. But I think what's important with hesitation isn't simply that you're pausing, but that hesitation for me as a scholar of performance and the body is that hesitation is a kind of pause, but you still keep going after. So it's not a kind of nihilism where you hesitate to give up, but you're hesitating in order to pause from how we've always done things in order to find a different pathway. Um, so that's always a very key part of hesitation for me. It's not just simply a refusal or a um, sort of a simple nihilism or giving up, but it's rather about um, shifting gears in, w- in ways that allow us to do things and think and theorize differently. That's great. And I think it's a, it's a very important um, attitude and method to, to have specifically when doing, you know, scholarly work, but, you know, beyond that as well. And we definitely see it through through the chapters. And if we are to start with chapter one entitled, we're going to party like it's 1989, proper China interdisciplinarity and the global art market, um, then we, we are offered a background in order to better understand the ways in which the art market around 1989 was um, has changed its shape due to interactions between late liberalism, race, uh, financialization, cultural wars, and many other currents and events. 
And the chapter here, um, I thought, focuses on uh, Tsai Guoqiang's Venice Rent Collection Courtyard. And I was wondering whether you could walk us through the analysis and show us how, on this path, we can arrive to a theory of aesthetics beyond a model of liberalism. Yeah, of course. So, um, so this chapter, this first chapter was a funny one for me to write. It was actually the last thing I wrote for the book. And the reason that it was the last thing was because it was the kind of challenge of trying to offer background on contemporary China and contemporary Chinese art to an audience that didn't just simply give the history of it, but rather placed it within a kind of larger context and was trying to historicize it in a way that really sort of placed pressure on liberalism, on late liberalism. Um, and so this, what it, you know, so w- the reason that was the hardest chapter for me to write was because I wanted to produce, give background, but I also wanted to not just use it as a kind of Wikipedia entry of contemporary Chinese art. Um, and so it ended up being difficult to write because I needed to bring in the kind of factual historical background and historical materialist sort of approach. But I also then needed to really think about it in a broader context of thinking about the culture wars, late liberalism, questions of race and financialization. In addition to 1989, you also see the rise of aesthetics and politics discourse as a kind of theoretical discourse, particularly through the work of Jack Ranciere. So I was trying to think about the kind of larger storm that um, produces this this discourse and fervor for China um, around 1989. So this was a this was a chapter where I was really trying to do that kind of larger historic, historicization work. Um, so in order to do that kind of work, um, I, I was sort of looking at three anchors: 1979 in terms of the end of the Cultural Revolution. Um, and this sort of shift in, in Chinese politics, 1989, particularly around the art world and um, China's sort of arrival there. And then I land at the end at 1999, which is the year of Tsai Guoqiang's Venice's art uh, rent collection courtyard, um, which appeared at the Venice uh, Biennale, which was a really big event and significant for China's presence in a kind of global art market. So these kind of three anchors of 1979, the end of the Cultural Revolution, 1989, and you're also talking about Tiananmen Square, what people call, um, you know, people have challenged Francis Fukuyama's sort of framing as the end of history. Um, and then 1999 um, with um, the Venice Biennale and kind of the emergence of China on the global market. Um, these three anchors allow us to really think about, you know, socialism and late capital. And so... The artwork I was looking at that helped me sort of constellate after do, producing this sort of larger history, I was t- then turned to Cycle Chang's work um, to really um, try to illustrate some of the, the need to think about China differently and this, these histories. So, um, so the Rent Collection Courtyard by Cycle Chang is a, is was a reproduction and a reperformance of Wang Guangyi's um, 1965 iconic sculpture Rent Collection Courtyard. Um, and the work was really thinking about labor um, and politics and feudal politics and work um, and the place of the worker. And so what Cycle Chang ended up doing, he ended up um, hiring artists to reproduce and rep- essentially reperform the, the recreation of the work throughout the entire run of the Biennale at Venice. Um, so in the Arsenale in the large sort of central building. Um, so the reason this work is so critical is because, and why I found it so helpful for this chapter, was that it first helps illustrate two kind of dominant readings for 
um, Saiguo Chang's work in Venice. So the first comes from the Sichuan Fine Arts Institute, um, which was um, initially suing Saiguo Chang for um, lack of copyright. And I think they're sort of illustrating one dominant reading of understanding the kind of original intent of social realism. Um, Wang Guangyi's work was so heralded by, by Mao's wife, it was seen as kind of a, an iconic, uh, um, iconic, um, iconic way to look at the figure of the laborer and the peasant. Um, and that became a kind of illustration of a kind of proper politics and, and a relationship across aesthetics and arts and politics that was um, quite direct. Um, the second dominant reading was Adventist itself, where it was really trying to illustrate the political realities of um, feudalism, of the Cultural Revolution, and of labor. So in that way, it sort of reproduced a very major understanding of China for a larger global art audience. So I wanted to kind of produce, look at the work differently and understand why Sai Guochang was interested in questions of different medial forms. So he's reproducing a sculpture, right? He's using performance to produce a sculpture over a long durée and making and using that performance as the artwork. And so in that way, he was really trying to think about the living labor, the performed labor behind the work itself. So I wanted to take that as a moment to really revisit questions of labor um, in terms of socialist ideals, and then to think about how labor um, and quote unquote immaterial labor as we talk about it now um, exists. And that under a kind of liberal discourse, particularly under Venice's purview, and also under a kind of major understanding or major frame of understanding China, um, this kind of revisit and use of performance um, becomes illegible um, to really think about the place of labor. So I wanted to um, look at this work to kind of highlight the need for a minor method to help us sort of think, um, think through questions of work and labor and the body um, that Sai Chang was so kind of playfully and smartly pointing to through this work. Um, and that helps us sort of think more broadly about 1979, the Cultural Revolution, uh, the end of the Cultural Revolution, 1989, sort of the huge shifts in China's policies um, in terms of sort of state capital and, and production, and then 1999 around um, late liberalism. Um, that the work was really trying to think through these sort of his, these historic moments to rethink questions of the body and work. Um, so for me, it was the the work itself was um, illustrating a lot of the kind of the need to to do the kind of larger historicization to provide some of this context, but to also then um, theorize the work for for its smart sort of play on medial form and performance itself for helping us think through socialism past and socialism present. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's well, it's a wonderful example uh, there to, to think through and to think with about these questions. Um, and it does start a, a broader conversation that maybe Ai Weiwei is also trying to, to you know, kind of um, address in a way or another. Um but that's for, for chapter two, uh, right? Entitled uh, All Look Same, Ai Weiwei's Multitudes, Comrade Aesthetics, and Racial Anger in a Time of Inclusion. Um, and the title, I thought, described very well the focus, uh, but while also considering the relationship between the art market and its ways of interacted, interacting with China as a place and an idea. Um, and my question here was... Um, 
how does Ai Weiwei's reconceptualize uh, inclusion and how does this uh, work, his work reconsider Marx's discourses on multitude. Um, and I think we started this a little bit by talking, uh, you mentioned um, immaterial labor. Um, so I think the, the threads are starting to, to, to become more visible <laughs> through the chapters. Well, I hope that's, that's, the, that's the hope in writing a book, right? <laughs> it's that the threads might come through. Um, so, so chapter two with Ai Weiwei um, was fundamentally sort of looking at his body of work and seeing so much repetition, right? He repeats objects, he repeats people, he repeats so many things. And in a way that's, you know, quite smart and quite interesting. Um, and Ai Weiwei also serves as kind of the easiest person to try to do a minor read in precisely because he's read in such a major key all the time as a resistant artist against the Chinese state. And so this chapter for me is really trying to think about how we can use a minor method to read such a canonical artist that's read so majorly in public discourse and also academic discourse. Um, and that in order to place pressure on that, I also want to think about how Ai Weiwei is representative of the inclusion of China, right? The inclusion of others in a global art market. So in some ways, your question is directing us to um, how inclusion operates. And that's fundamentally what's sort of undergirding this chapter around how and why Ai Weiwei has come to be included as emblematic of a kind of subject that is resisting China. And so for me, I wanted to sort of locate what it means, uh, what it means to include, not at the level of minoritarian bodies and people, but really at the level of the subject and what's happening here. Because oftentimes the kind of liberal individual subject is what undergirds the project of inclusion in the global art market. So it's the, you know, it's the single Herculean brilliant artist that is showing how brilliant they are and how they can critique the state. And that narrative is undergirded by a certain understanding of the subject and particularly a liberal understanding of the subject. So the chapter is looking at, um, at how and why this subject comes to repeat it, comes to be repeated, and what narratives often undergird this bring this bring this sort of notion of the liberal Hergelian subject. And so the dominant narratives that under also often undergird this are usually humanization and um, and inner and inner subjectivity. So what I mean by that is in Iowa Way's work at document at Documenta Fairy Tale, which is the the piece that I write on. Um, you know, he brings in, again, repeated parts, right? He brings in discarded doors that produce a sculpture. Um, he brings in a ton, ton of sort of reconstructed chairs. But the most sort of interesting part of the project is that he brings over from China 1001 Chinese. And one of the sort of critical concepts that I wanted to think about was what it means to sort of be a repeatable object of history which is really about, about writing about the condition in which many Asian and Asian Americans and Asian looking subjects um, sort of exist under, which is you know, the racist condition of we all look the same, all look same, right? So this is, condition, this is the condition, and I kind of write this cheekily in the book, where you know, I myself have been um, rendered all look same in terms of you know, I'm an academic, and even then I have been confused for other Asian colleagues that look absolutely nothing like me, you know? And I think one of the knee-jerk reactions is to turn to a liberal ideal of the subject and say, actually, you need to humanize me and see me as an individual. Or 
And, and then so that becomes one sort of huge sort of move. And what I wanted to do is sort of think about how repetition and, um, and uh, how I always using repetition and a different idea of the subject beyond that sort of knee jerk move. The other sort of um, narrative that also that off knee jerk narrative or the narrative that's often deployed to talk about um, the, the, the engagement of subjects is that it produces an intersubjective moment for one subject to connect with another. Um, so what I wanted to do is sort of turn to Iowa's use of repetition and a different idea of inclusion that revises our idea of the subject. So this is why I sort of developed a term called comrade aesthetics. So I wanted to think about the comrade as a different genealogy for the subject beyond a kind of liberal individualism. And that, that idea of a comrade um, a comrade aesthetics, a comrade ethics, a comrade as a subject can help us revise the very project of inclusion in and of itself. And so that comrade is slightly generic. That comrade is slightly, um, isn't just completely about one's, one's self, um, self sort of enlightenment and ownership, but rather that comrade is always tied to another, is always tied to one in a social structure, is tied to a larger political project. Um, so I want to sort of theorize how um, Iowa Wei is producing a different kind of the subject that's drawing from Chinese socialism um, and, uh, and, and, and producing a different idea of the subjects to, to therefore revise the very project of the subject end of itself um, for the project for how inclusion can operate. Um, so that's fundamentally what the work the chapter is trying to do in terms of um, reconceptualizing inclusion precisely at the level of the subject. Um, so then to answer the second part of your question, one of the main things I want to do then was just not say, well, he's using repetition to, to show the multitude, because that's a huge Marxist discourse um, that's been produced by Hart and Negree and, and developed by many others. Um, but I was actually thinking about how I will ways actually um, theorizing this mass, this multitude, this comrade from a long um, and relational racial history surrounding all look same and being rendered um, the same as object is repeatable as the racialized as sort of a diminished racialized subject. So I want to think about how that reproduction of um, of a subjecthood of a comradehood that's produced through all look same, um, this sort of racist condition, um, fuels and produces a kind of a historicized a historical racial affect and I'm calling racial anger. Um, so I'm sort of developing work from Audre Lorde and a few others to really think about um, how we how that can how ideas of racial anger and historical affects allow us to actually also further revise not just to turn to comrades and the multitudes, but to even revise those concepts the end of themselves. Um, so that's fundamentally um, how I'm trying to um, sort of reconceptualize inclusion and also reconceptualize the multitude as a term. That is very very uh, interesting, and I'm very drawn to this idea of of the racial anger and and talking about inclusion. That um, you know, as as a method, of course, that could be um, you know very fruitful in thinking about other contexts, maybe um, or you know, sparking other conversations. Um, you know, that kind of fall under the umbrella of all look same in a in a sense to to use your words um but you know i don't want to kind of you know derail the conversation so <laughs> well um, i mean ulti yeah. ultimately i do hope the book can help people not just think through china but i really was trying to write it because i actually think this is the condition of the major as i write about in in the introduction 
and hence my turn to the minorism method, is really, I'm hoping, a way for, um, <laughs> for people, for minoritarian subjects, for well beyond China and Asian Americanness and Asianness, um, as a way to you deploy a method that helps us think differently for many different types of subjects. I think many people are interpolated into the major, which is which means to be you know rendered very legible under liberal discourses. Absolutely, yes, and you know just by the nature of, of my own location, I'm thinking about you know the the indigenous uh, population in in Canada, for example, and all the the conversations around the topic and, you know, inclusion as it's politically, um, you know, paraded in a way sometimes. Um, but yeah, so I, I totally hope that these conversations uh, will emerge more, more and more. Um, and, uh, you know, to just kind of continue on the same line, I think um, in chapter three, right, uh, entitled Minoring the Universal, Affect and the Molecular in Yan, uh, Yen Sing's performances and Liu Ting, Carol Lu, and Su Wei's creation as uh, art practice, um, we see um, these two streams of, of analysis that are connected by the use of affect as a, quote, curatorial method, end of quote, and that was from page 34. And... Um, one stream of analysis comprises an analysis of work by Liu Ting, Car- uh, Carol, Inghua, Lu, and Su Wei, while the other dedicates time and space to Yen Sing's work. And the concept of the minor analytics plays an important role. And I would like to ask you to speak more about this concept and its pivotal role in describing these artists' work and the art field, um, as we've seen it defined in chapter one and then continued in chapter two, but here it seems a little bit different. So, you know, I wanted to to kind of push the conversation towards that a bit. No, definitely. Um, so maybe I'll just, I'll start with the art practice because I think that's sort of the, the, the anchor and kind of what I kind of fell in love with. So this chapter is, was actually... Um, these two sets of practices were what inspired the book, to be quite frank. Um, and um, so I, I first met Yo Ding and Carol Yinghua Lu and Su Wei during a research trip. And they were so open to meeting and we spent a ton of time together. And I, they're just, they're brilliant, right? And I just, what I was so attracted to was how they were approaching curation as a practice. So I think one sort of concrete way to illustrate this is that in their curation as a mode of art practice, what they're trying to do is use affect as a kind of method, as a methodology. So when they curate shows on the history of contemporary Chinese art, what they're resisting is that is the need to either show a teleology of, you know, here's this year, here's the next year, here are the big players. And they also resist kind of making, rendering very legible, here are the big works, right? And instead, but how they curate is based upon how artists were relating to one another, how concepts and aesthetic movements were building off of one another, which is fundamentally about using affect as a curatorial method. And so that fundamentally shifts ideas of historical time and linear time. It also shifts um, how we privilege certain, you know, certain works as the big works over others. And rather, affect as a curatorial method actually highlights how temporality is um, and ideas of history and time are often understood as in these sort of linear forms and also highlights the ways in which curation is often dominated by, you know, one like the best hits, right? And I think they were really interested in rethinking that um, using the minor as a method. 
and they actually curated some of Yin Xing's work in some of their own um, in some of their own projects. And so that's when I was first introduced to his work. Um, but I didn't realize it was the same artist un- until I had started had- having a conversation with Yan Qing when I was all- on the same research trip. And I first encountered his work um, at, a, at, at, um, at a show. And I, was, I sat in front of it for two hours. And it's only like a seven-minute looped video. And it was, it's the cover of my book. And it's a very simple kind of re-performance of... Um, Nam Jun Peck and Charlotte Mormon's very canonical work. Um, that's a that's actually a reperformance of a, of a John Cage piece. So I was really fascinated by Yin Qing's um, sort of formal work, but also his reperformance of a reperformance of a musical performance. And I it was it 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 just came to my mind around. So so I was just really mesmerized by both works. And I was actually quite confused and confounded, to be quite frank. I didn't have an initial easy read on either of them. I just felt that they were doing things really differently. So what I what I ended up doing in terms of looking at their work was to just see how they were using affect and other minor minor analytics as sort of methods. And so as I was talking about when I was describing both works, you could see how affect and and other minor molecular sort of approaches in their work were helping us sort of really rethink the structure of time and, and temporality and history in the case of curation. And I think for Yen Qing, he, um, a lot of his work was thinking a lot about referentiality and, you know, so, so to, to, in his work on kind of reperforming a reperformance of a reperformance, he's often trying to highlight the, the, the need for citationality, the need to, to highlight, you know, the, the, and put him place, place his work within a genealogy of forefathers, um, which is really trying to highlight a, a kind of Oedipal condition. Um, and so, but and f- neither of them are necessarily trying to give you the alternative to history or the Oedipal condition, but really highlighting how both predominate how we think about curation in the case of um, Yoding, Carol Lu, and Su Wei, and then in the and then for in the case of the Oedipal complex for Yen Qing, um, in terms of his own art practice. So. For me, um, these different sets um, of these different artistic practices were really pro- providing these kind of minor analytics as methods um, to to highlight uh, the need to rethink ideas around history, the state, the subject, um, and that was sort of a key part of um, of the genesis of this book. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Absolutely. And, um, well, I'm saying absolutely as a way of saying that is amazing. But... um, I'm also thinking, um, as you were you were describing um, this um, the, the affect as a curatorial method. I was thinking about you know museums and the way they're built, and you know the the sometimes colonial histories behind them, and how you know we're we're taught or we're showed something um, in a way that yes creates a you know a narrative, but you know that sometimes um, is more than that, um, and. 
that kind of led me to this idea that having affect as the method in putting together something like this is so important and should be, um, you know, sparking, again, conversations. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know if that makes sense. I was just going yeah, you to know, no, of course. <laughs> no, and I think for them, you know, in terms of kind of the second part of your question about how these works, these artists are sort of working within a larger art field, right? I think, you know, curation is such a huge topic right now and it's, you know, everywhere. And what I really found interesting is that the the project that Liu Ding, Karolu, and Sui were doing around curation w- wasn't just a kind of theoretical idea, but they were also playing with space and time, with the space of the gallery. So they had very low walls. They had... Um, they had um, sort of they they produced these sort of lower walls that were highlighted in blue that would sh- you know kind of direct a viewer without f- fully guiding them but kind of encouraging them to find these relations across works. So they were also playing not just with affect as a kind of curatorial method, but also with space itself um, to help kind of think through some of these larger um, these larger questions around curation. That's great. And I think that, as you, you mentioned, right, that's a, a very innovative and, you know, you can call it a genius way of, of playing with these things to, um, you know, highlight certain aspects or to make you think about um, space uh, itself, right? Um, but, you know, just to, to keep the conversation going, um, I'm going to just hop on to chapter four and um you know which is entitled minor agencies reformulating the mystification and performativity through the works of uh, Zhang Huan, He Chang Yao and Cao Fei. Um, and here um I think the chapter engages with fabulation and meditation in relation to resistance and its discourse in non-Western settings. And my question um and just revolves around the the concept of fabulation and meditation and the ways in which they uh, challenge portrayals of political critique. And, you know, I was also intrigued by the possibilities, um, exist, the, the existing possibilities for imagining agencies through a or agency um, from these perspectives. Yeah, I think this chapter for me was very much about rethinking what political critique is. So, you know, I think I was sort of seeing a, a sort of a, a kind of arithmetic or a kind of logic that was undergirding many fields, especially within my own field of performance studies, which has a very deep relationship to Marxism via Brecht, right? So it's a the idea of Brechtian alienation, this kind of genealogy from Marxist aesthetics that infuses performance studies in many other fields. And that kind of idea of, a, of how the political works from an art object is, is, is a, um, sort of unfolds in, in a certain way, which is you, know, you have the brilliant aware artist that's aware of their own alienation. They pr- create an art object and use particular aesthetics to then inspire its audience to realize, you know, their own alienation, and they perform agency, action, um, and resistance, and, and create change. So this kind of linear, you know, relationship across art object, performance, and then resistance. And what I really want to fundamentally do with this chapter is look at artworks that were re- that were not reproducing such a, 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 a kind of easy line across what we think the political is, especially from the aesthetic to the politics. And so what I turn to 
um, is looking at the, these artists who I'm theorizing sort of perform certain forms of meditation and fabulation that produce different cognitive modes that are not as direct from art object to resistance, and that they allow us to imagine agency differently. Um, so, the, so for example, um, in, the, in chapter four, where I turn to um, Zhang Huan and He Sengyao, um, I really wanted to sort of think through Buddhist epistemologies around meditation, um, because many of their works are um, quite meditative and they're trying to just sort of be in time. Um, and so often Zhang Huan who's, and He Sengyao, both of them are quite canonical in terms of contemporary Chinese art. And a lot of their works are often showing, you know, how they're, you know, revealing the, the ills of China's rapid, uh, rapid, um, rapid urbanization um, and their kind of alienation, which is partially true. But I wanted, which, you know, repeats that kind of political cheek from art object to agency action to resistance. But I was really interesting, interested in, and, and, and in turn, a lot of them are then talked about as, um, as artists who are, you know, um, doing body art that is, you know, really um, showing pain and kind of in endurance, endurance art, and essentially is kind of the key term there. But when I turned to meditation as a kind of theoretical analytic and drawing from the Buddhist epistemologies, what I really found with what they were doing was being in time, was being present in time, lingering in time. And that doesn't, have, you know, it doesn't produce this kind of similar idea of a direct agency or direct resistance. And so I sort of theorize what meditation might provide as a different cognitive mode that works outside of that um, sort of equation or from art object to resistance. And Taufei, um, I absolutely love her work. And one of the one of the things I was most interested in was how she was um, working with cosplay. So cosplay is that phenomenon um, that is a lot more ubiquitous now, um, but it's you know it's usually people who come together and replay many of their favorite anime characters. As I'm you know in a very broad level, um, but one of the sort of brilliant things she does is that she doesn't just show people in in their costume in their costume play in in action. She shows them in action, but she also shows them bored and not in action. <laughs> she shows them in everyday settings, right? She shows them sitting next to the, like their grandparents reading the newspaper. And then she shows them, you know, it's kind of dazing off in, into the sky. And then she shows them in like, you know, the anime pose. And I was really fascinated about what it means to be on and off. And when they're showing agency and resistance and showing absolute boredom, and I wanted to sort of capture that range through the idea of fabulation um, that she, she, I felt that she was um, encapsulating so well. So that both fabulation and meditation um, offer different ideas of agency that don't replicate the same idea of agency that undergirds sort of Marxist um, inflected ideas um, that inform, Marxist inflected ideas that inform many fields um, around how they then theorize the art object, the aesthetic object as resistance against power. And so that was fundamentally a, sort of the generating force of this particular chapter. And I would also add a bit of the performative aspect, right? You, you mentioned about this on and off, right, mode of, of cosplay. Um, and I think maybe performance is a, an important, um, you know, a detail to 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 talk about here um maybe you know for for future conversations um because of this this moment and also the the on pose um that might produce a certain affect or you know might 
uh, say something about the, the the character impersonated through the costume, and then the the boredom, right, that you you mentioned as well, or maybe the annoyance. Uh, who knows? Um, there. Yeah, no, I think and a key part of that idea of performance, you know, it's I, I then go through performativity as a discourse in the chapter. And so if you're a performance studies and theory geek, then I'm, I'm hoping you'll read it for that reason. But I think on a broader level for kind of larger audiences, um, you know, I think one key aspect of performance is that we often think about it um, as about performance is about being on, you know, and about showing one's true self or showing the self. Um, but I think there's a lot of work in my own field and many related fields where people are trying to write about opacity and the performance of refusal and what it means to not always have to perform in these certain ways. So then um, this is drawing from fields like disability studies um, and feminist and queer studies and critical race theory that are, are really trying to develop that as a kind of key analytic. So this is sort of part of that conversation and in, in rethinking performance as always felicitous, as always on, as always doing something, um, but rather um, not doing anything. And I think that's as important to theorize and think through as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, that's um, a little bit, you know, I, 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 yeah, I needed to, to mention the, the performance aspect and performativity because um, I didn't mention in the first question uh, on this chapter, but I thought as I'm listening to you, you speak, I thought, well, you know, actually it's important to, to say it something about it as well and i think it does connect to the to chapter five um where we talk about um you know the the cinematic and the theatrical and you know that's um that those words are in the title right tout monde and the minor the cinematic and theatrical chinese woman in isaac julian's ten thousand waves um and um here the chapter emphasizes with greater strength the importance of uh relationality and shows that different forms of solidarity emerge from unexpected places and they do morph into some sort of political engagement and the, the tout monde uh, concept and the minor in relation to each other, um, you know, um, I thought they, 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 they come together in an interesting way. And I wanted to ask you about it and also to, to pose a question about how Julian's artwork uh, brings to light reconsiderations of racialized and gender themes. Um, mm-hmm. Here. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. So... You know, this, but maybe before turning to Glisson, uh, to Glisson Julien, I think, um, you know, f- the this this kind of last chapter before we get to the afterward is really trying to think about a kind of larger um, need and a, a move in Marxist discourse around ideas of totality or sort of tracking totality in the sort of the larger world through ideas of the minor, right? So there's, from the Frankfurt School, there's the Denk Builder, which was a kind of turn to really kind of minor forms to theorize sort of a larger philosophy of history with Deleuze and thinking about the monad. And then I then turned to Glissant to think about the monde as a way of thinking through the minor totality and ultimately like what he theorizes as the monde, all worlds, um, which is really about his larger project of relationality. Or kind of relational um, relational thinking. Um, so that's kind of the theoretical rubric that undergirds chapter five. And I think I turn to Isaac Julian to help think through um, think through how the minor has a larger genealogy and relationship to Marxist discourses of totality. So 
What I mean by that is like on a more grounded level, you know, Julian um, in 10,000 Waves is really drawing on questions of labor and work. And so in 2004, there was a huge tragedy in the UK at Morocan Bay where um, 23 Chinese immigrant um, cockle pickers, they were in a storm and their boat um, uh, overturned. And so it was sort of a huge televised event to sort of see if anyone would be saved. And there was, you know, huge, a huge loss of life. And so there's a large question by Julianne about like capital now and you know, the disposability of bodies and labor. So there's really some key material Marxist questions um, that are lingering here. But in typical Julian style, right, he's thinking through these questions through the aesthetic in some really kind of difficult ways. And so what he ends up doing is he, you know, formally turns to uh, work. um, And this this has sort of been a repeated formal approach for him of using huge, large screen panels um, that are... um, um, showing multiple videos at different times. And um, and so the work that I was drawing from was his display at MoMA in New York, where it was, just, it was just gorgeous. And in the work, he, rather than sort of depicting just the news footage of the tragedy that happened in 2004, he is trying to think about it within a longer history. So he draws from some of the news footage around, the, around um, these cockle pickers in Morakam Bay, but he's also then sort of looking at three different eras of Chinese history from the Ming Dynasty, 1930s Shanghai, and contemporary China. And um, in in turning to these moments, he also um, there's what he, what in interviews what he calls the angel of history, sort of Benjamin's angel of history comes flying through all three moments, right? And then there's also these moments of of references to Chinese theater and Chinese film in particular. Um, so I wanted to think about what the place of the Chinese woman was playing here. And um, it's of no coincidence that you know, the very famous Maggie Chung is playing the angel of history. <laughs> so what does it mean that this like iconic film actress is playing the angel of history? Meanwhile, he also shows green screen shots of... Um, of a replaceable Chinese woman that isn't Maggie Chung, right? And he's showing the fans. He's doing a Brechtian thing, right? He's showing the fans. He's showing the apparatuses and the green screens that he's using to produce the video and then will then transplant Maggie Chung's face. But he's actually just showing that entire apparatus there. So there's something about Maggie Chung as an icon and then the kind of replaceable, repeatable theatrical surrogate, the replaceable um, objecthood of, 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 of a Chinese woman that comes together here in this work. And so I was interested both in the larger kind of questions on labor, but also what's undergirding that labor aesthetically for the work, for, for when I was really drawn to the work, was his relationship to the, to the figure of, of, of the Chinese woman. So I was really interested in how he is trying to theorize a type of objecthood that's captured through the Chinese woman that is both about the kind of iconic, unknowable, singular figure like in Maggie Chung, and then the surrogate, repeatable, theatrical, theatrical surrogate, which is, you know, one learns a role and then surrogates, repeats, and, and tries to um, um, sort of repeat what was done before. So there's something about unknowability and knowability. There's something about surrogate and icon that is being produced in this very work. 
And I think for me, I was trying to sort of think through the place of race and gender and the Chinese woman, um, and for Julianne to think about how this kind of objecthood undergirds many different forms of minoritarian existence. And that it doesn't mean that we try to know or, or uh, fully know the other or fully understand them as singular, as liberal sort of Herculean, like to go back to chapter two, the kind of liberal knowable subject, but rather we understand this condition of unknowability and knowability, of repeatability and iconicity, of surrogacy and iconicity as a condition that forces us to to always think about us in relationship to others, to other objects in history. And that produces a certain kind of ethic that is both impossible to capture a relation with others, but also necessary to try to find those relations. And that I was, so I was really trying to think through this work and ideas of the Tutmond and Julian's work as producing a kind of ethic and aesthetic for thinking through what it means to be in relationship to one another, what it means to be in relation. And that it is precisely through a certain kind of objecthood of the Chinese woman as icon and surrogate that allows us to begin to start thinking through these forms of relationality. So the reason I want to sort of rethink relationality is because oftentimes I think relationality is thought about as, you know, you connect to others, there's instant solidarity. But as we know, right, in terms of, as you're talking about in the context of Canada with indigeneity, with questions of anti-Blackness, not all racial forms are equivalent and that there are fractures and there are differences um, and there are antagonisms across racial groups. It's not just about solely the specter of white supremacy. It organizes antagonisms across groups. So I wanted to really think about relationality in its ruptures and its difficulties. And I felt like this was a work that allowed us, that is allowing us to start to do that type of work of rethinking relationality beyond a sort of easy solidarity. That's fascinating. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how um, what you described um, that the chapter comprises of also um, enriches, you know, ideas of disposability and how this, this idea of surrogacy and replaceability, but also relationality, um, you know, can build or uh, help think through um, this um, neoliberal construction of disposability uh, applied to certain groups um, and then, you know, how they relate to each other from this perspective. So, um, you know, I found that very, um, very useful, but, you know, also in a way showing more of the, the um, potentiality of speaking um, of um, the relations between, say, uh, the Chinese diaspora in, in Quebec and the indigenous um, population Right, that it's um it's an interesting type of history uh, there as well. For example, just to give an example, right? Yeah, yeah, and that in trying to make that comparison, right, you're not trying to say, oh, look, they're just minoritarians in the context of Quebec, but rather there are different relationships to land and labor <laughs> that infuse these populations, and we have to contend with those differences in order to understand what it means to be in solidarity. And I think oftentimes in the rush to, for solidarity and the rush for, for relation, we sort of skip over those key differences to just say, look, we're just minoritarian others. But I really want to use the minors method to, to begin to work outside of that sort of framework and to rethink and to revise um, relationality as a term that I think many fields are, are working with and through. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, it's um, with, with 
this idea of relationality, I think it's um, in, in the afterword, you also, um, you know, use, it's a very clever use of, of prepositions. Uh, and, um, you know, when you're saying um, those, uh, for those minor in and to China, so I'm just going to read the, the full title and then ask my question. Um, so the afterword is entitled for those minor in and to China protests in Hong Kong and Samsung Young in Venice. Um, and here the question regarding those minor in and to China just stood out to me. And I thought it's, it's a very um, clever way of, of summing up um, a lot of the, the ideas in the book. And I wanted to reiterate the question here and hope to hear more um, while in the answer, uh, more about Samsung Young's work uh, as well. Sure. Um, so this was a, this was a f- the kind of the afterward that I, I, I think I wrote very quickly because I was just, it came out of me um, surprisingly easily in writing. And I think it was because it, it was really personal for me, you know. Um, I, you know, my family's from Taiwan and we, I have, I am minor to China. <laughs> like I am not, I am, I have been taught that China is quite major. Um, and in terms of my own family history and it, this was a chapter where I was also trying to respond to critiques that, you know, well, what about those populations who are minor in China, like the Uyghurs, you know, like Tibet, um, what about gendered and sexual minorities in China? And what I didn't want to do was simply turn to minor populations and repeat the critiques I was doing in the introduction, which is I didn't want to just show them as stable subjects so that you learn more about minority subjects in China, um, partially because that f- further a kind of furthers a sort of late liberal project, and it also becomes an impossible task. Precisely as we're seeing with diversity, you know, we keep listing, but the problem isn't the listing. The problem is the social structures that undergird the listing project in and of itself, right? And so what I really want to do here was not just say, well, here are all those minor two, because I didn't want to just produce a kind of ethnographic project of, let me show you my own minorness to, the, to, this, to this. But rather, I wanted to think about what the minor is a kind of method, right? This is the larger book, like how being minor in and to China produces a certain kind of minor method. And that being minor in into China, so this condition around Hong Kong, around Taiwan, around Tibet, around gendered and sexualized minorities, around the Uyghurs, that all of these populations that are minor in into China ultimately point us and deploy the minor method to allow us to really rethink the idea of critique itself. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when I would start talking about um, minor China, a lot of people in Asian studies, a lot of, in conferences and in talks would sort of say, but China is major, why make it minor? And what I wanted to sort of say is that this larger condition of being minor in and to China is fundamentally about a kind of larger investment in possibility, a possibility to change the conditions of the present. And so it's about challenging China. It's about challenging power. It's about challenging major China because China is quite in fact major and there's so many nuances there. And so what I want to do is sort of understand how liberalism inframes critique itself and liberalism infuses our own investment in possibility to render China major. And that the condition of being minor in and to is really trying to show us what undergirds the idea and investment in possibility and change in critique. 
Because um, I think a lot of this boils down to investments in speech, right? So if you think about Hong Kong, right, and I was writing this before um, 2020, you know, much of this was about looking at Hong Kong and all the massive protests that, that were emerging there. And that it was so fascinating to me to kind of see all these responses to Hong Kong where both, you know, in the U.S. itself, Republicans and Democrats were united against China and sort of trying to support Hong Kong's for its right for speech, for its rights, right, for free speech. And that I feel like this is a condition that often inf- that is sort of suffusing many people who are critiquing a non-Western nation state, that, it, that there's often support for it because it doesn't, it doesn't measure up to the modernity of the U.S., but the form of critique that I'm invested in is simultaneously, one, a critique of the problems of China as a nation state, but two, it's also investment in critiquing the United States for the very problems that it sees in other nation states, right? So the nation, the, the U.S. loves to critique everyone else for genocide, for um, for uh, you know, like unruly policing, for um, state-sanctioned torture for all these things that the U.S. has repeatedly done forever, right? The, the United States, pro- the U.S. as a project is completely premised upon capitalist extraction, upon <laughs> state-sanctioned torture. And so I wanted to be able to try to figure out what is it with critique and what is it about being minor in into China that allows us to see how critique is so informed by liberalism in and of itself and a certain investment in liberal free speech. And so I turned to Samson Young's work, who's an artist coming out of Hong Kong to sort of start to unpack this question. Because one of the things I was interested in thinking about is, is there a genealogy of speech that isn't from liberalism? You know, what is a Marxist genealogy of speech? Can you free speech from free speech? Right? Can you actually free the concept of speech from free speech itself? And so Samson Young does a lot of work in voice, in sound, in speech. And one of us, when I saw his work in Venice, it kind of clicked in my head that he's he's helping us think through a certain kind of genealogy of and the history of Maoism and Marxism to help us begin to think about sound and song, sound and song and silence as a way to begin to unpack and develop these ideas of speech that don't default in a, in a kind of liberal mode. Um, so that's fundamentally what I'm trying to do with um, in that particular chapter. I can talk more about Samson Young's work as well, if you'd like, but that's kind of what's undergirding the larger thrust of the chapter. That's amazing. And I think um, the... The, the preview, right, of, of Samsung Young's work. Um, you know, I'm happy to, to listen more if, if you know, you, you could give us, let's say, a minute of, of that, but I don't want to take too much of your time. No, 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 of course. Um, so one of, so the work at, at that was at Venice um, in, I think, 2017. Um, um, it was, a, you know, a large-scale large installation that has many different parts, but one of one key part um, was kind of the opening of the piece. So the opening of the piece are these kind of beautiful colored ramps. And then in neon on a wall, um, he has a quote from Mao that is, the world is yours, but also ours, but basically yours, which was um, a quote from Mao during the Hundred Flowers campaign, which was, his, was Mao's attempt to open up speech and critique. 
um, and that this was a quote he said to students who were studying abroad um, to think about, you know, their relationship, the world is yours, but ours, but basically yours. It's, it's sort of a, a precursor to speech. It's a precursor to theorizing one's relationship to the world. And it's a precursor of a, of a kind of Maoist relationship to, to all these questions. Um, and so I wanted to sort of think about how, um, how, you know, how he opens up with this, but then turns to different investments in song and sound and song and silence. Um, so he also, another part of the work um, is, is a, I mean, these works are so complicated, so I'm trying to make sure they're, I do justice, but don't go on forever to talk about them. But the, he has this beautiful recording of a choir um, that is um, formed of members of, um, of a pro, sort of pro-Beijing labor union. And it's a choir that is um, humming and sort of raspily singing, We Are the World, um, the charity song. And the work is really trying to think about these relationships across Beijing and Hong Kong, um, but also sound and silence and murmurs. And so what I sort of theorize in the chapter are these kind of affective, silent, murmured relationships to Maoism and Marx that help us sort of open up space to rethink speech. Um, so that's sort of fundamentally what I'm sort of thinking with and through in terms of Samson Young's work. That's that's amazing, and you know, I'm I'm very curious now to to just uh, you know see where where and whether it's still um, you know exhibited and you know kind of experience it myself. Um, but um, you know, I hope all the listeners will will have the same uh, impulse that I'm having. So you know, but. Um, yeah, we, we have already taken a lot of your time. So I was wondering whether you could tell us about your current projects and, you know, what you're w- working on right now. Yeah, sure. Um, we haven't taken up so much time. This is really a joy. So thanks again for you, Victoria, for taking up the t- taking your time to do this. Um, but so work-wise, um, so I have a shorter book right now that I'm finishing up or, you know, sort of wrapping up that's around the question of relationality. Um, and so that I sort of have swimming throughout the book, the Minor China book. And, but the archive itself is thinking through um, a lot of, uh, it's re- the archive itself is relational. So there are um, many artists from many different backgrounds and uh, many relational artists, uh, many artists from diverse backgrounds that are really thinking through the question of relationality and relation. Um, so I've published a couple of articles on that are kind of part of that book, and it's sort of a kind of smaller book that I'm working on, and hopefully we'll we'll finish one of these days. But the large, I know the the utopic ho- the the hope that we all have in our work, um, the the kind of bigger project that I'm really putting a lot more time in right now and thinking through is on disability. Um, so the book end of itself is thinking, it started off by noticing historically that in 1990, both the U.S. and China passed their um, major disability legislation. And I was wondering why at the height of neoliberalism, right, this is 1990, um, disability suddenly comes to be recognized as a major identity category protected by the law in across the Pacific, in the US and China. So, and then it was, it's also sort of noting how disability aesthetics, disability art also comes to be consolidated as a kind of recognizable category at the turn of the 20th century as well. 
So the larger book is thinking about law and aesthetics and why disability comes to be organized as a cat organizing category for the world at the end of the 20th century at the height of neoliberalism. Um, so, you know, a quick preview of that, um, and I have an American Quarterly article on kind of the legal background of this, but, you know, very briefly, you know, what I noticed in looking at in the context of the United States with the passage of the Americans with, um, with Disabilities Act, the ADA, that a lot of, it was passed in 1990 and on the back of like huge activist work that had been happening for decades and, and, and a long time. But what you see is that it's the last major civil rights legislation um, passed that was supported by both liberal by both conservatives and liberals. Um, so there's it's sort of asking the question as to why there was such a huge buy-in and how such a, a civil rights legislation was essentially backed by Reagan and signed by Bush, the first Bush. Um, and what you see in the record is that it's the discourse of the right to work, independent living, were very much were very appealing to conservatives because it meant the end of welfare or their desire to, to limit welfare. And so much of this was very much, disability was very much tied into um, the end of welfare, which was very much about grappling with the specter of the welfare queen, which is highly racialized, highly gendered. So that's on the US side, you kind of notice these questions of race being really managed with and through disability at the height of neoliberalism. And then with China, you know, both the U.S. The US and China passed major disability legislation well before other nations. And so for China, this is after 1989. This is after Tiananmen Square. And so what you see, China is grappling with its racialization as unmodern, as, as backwards. And, use, and the sort of theory that I'm kind of putting forward is that China is grappling with its racialization as unmodern and uses disability as a way to place it within a kind of modern nation, a, a league of modern nations, and to enter capitalist modernity in a particular way. And so what you see here is that this race becomes another critical analytic similar to the US, but for China, race, it's really dealing with its racialization as a nation state. So I'm thinking through how disability um, helps us organize the world in its articulation with questions of race, gender, and sexuality and social difference more broadly um, in the kind of legal, in the legal realm. And then, I, then I'm also sort of turning the, to the aesthetic and sort of the, historicizing why it also emerges around this period as well. So that's kind of uh, the kind of larger project that I think will probably take up, it feels like, the rest of my life. But, um, <laughs> but just kidding. But, um, but that's kind of very broadly where um, I'm, a lot of my work is headed nowadays in terms of thinking through questions of disability, but really it's kind of global production across the Pacific. That's that's super fascinating. And, you know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking whether um, the AIDS um, epidemic had any um, impact on in the 90s on these um, policies, but also on the ways in which uh, activism in the U.S. Uh, led to, you know, a recognition and an attempt, at least. I'm not sure if it actually went oh, through. Oh, you know, but... it, it's a huge, this is, I have a whole chapter on HIV AIDS, because I think how the law, you know, how the, how in particular, how the U.S. comes to recognize HIV AIDS has a very fascinating history, which is partially about activists, but also hugely partially about um, its legibility. Um, it with, you know, if you look at the case law, it's quite fascinating. So that, that is a, a huge part of it. In addition to the larger archive of work grappling with HIV and AIDS, which is massive as well. So there, 
there's a lot that I'm working through there, um, particularly through documentary film right now. But you know, the, the question of HIV AIDS and its categorization as a disability or not, in terms of how China and U.S. grapple with that question, um, is, is, uh, is a big part of the book, certainly. I look forward to reading it. I mean, I, I plan to have, a, you know, in, in my future book that, as you said, it feels like it's going to take the rest of my, I don't know, 70 years, uh, you know. But, um, yeah, I, I did look a little bit at HIV AIDS, too, in, in China specifically, but in relation to Brazil, not to, to the U.S. And, um, yeah, and then the, the four freeze and one, one care or one worry campaign in, and I mean, legislation as well, but campaign um, in relation to Hanan uh, in China. So um, yeah, I, I'm you know I'm very much looking forward to reading your chapter in your book, but also the you know the the rest of of the projects that you're uh, working on, and I'm sure will will come to life not you know in the or to light right not in the next fifty years but sooner. <laughs> well, yeah. and I also look forward to reading your own work as well, and perhaps we can swap uh, swap seats sometime, and, and when your book is out, and I can interview you, that'd be oh, great. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yep. Um, so I will thank you very much for the interview and for taking the time to to talk to us about this fascinating book. And I hope you know um, people will download and will uh, download the interview and will uh, read the book because it is indeed fascinating. And I look forward to to having you here in the near future again yeah thank you so much and again maybe if it's in the near future to talk about your own work i'd love that